0: Well, if you have a Bible and you want to turn to Psalm 84, we're going to look at that this morning. Psalm 84. Father, i ask you will open your word to our hearts today, Lord, and open our eyes and our understanding to see you, Lord, for who you are. And I thank you that you'll do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning in verse 1, Psalm 84, the psalmist writes, How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yea, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you, Selah. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. And everyone said, amen. Amen. We should be able to say amen to that, right? Nobody really knows for sure who wrote this psalm or under what circumstances it was written for. But I tend to agree with Spurgeon that when you read this psalm, it just kind of has the perfume of David. You know, it just kind of has that odor of his devotion, if you want to put it that way. I believe that he was driven to the wilderness many times away from the tabernacle and the house of God. So, whether this was written in the days when Saul was king, or I think it's more likely Matthew Henry, I would agree with him. He believes it was written when Absalom, in his rebellion, had drove David away from Jerusalem. And David really, at that point, he didn't know that he'd ever be back when he was driven away then. And the amazing thing is, I think, with this psalm is David's lamenting, he's longing to be back in God's house, not because he's away from his royal throne or his home or all the comforts of the palace, but what's he lamenting? That he is being deprived of the place where God has chosen to manifest his presence. He's lamenting that he's away from God's tabernacle, and that's what his godly soul longed and cried out for. This psalm, it breaks down, actually, where you have two silahs in there, and you have four verses, then a silah, four more verses, then a silah, and it breaks into three stanzas of four verses each. And the first four verses one to four, they tell of David's yearning to dwell in the presence of God. That's verses one through, four. Verses five through eight tell of the blessings of, of the pilgrimage to go to God's dwelling. And the last four, verses 9 to 12, tell us of the blessing of dwelling with God, trusting in God, dwelling with him in faith. And today, I just really want to look at these first four verses, though. Verses 1 to 4, where David's yearning to dwell with the living God. And look at verse 1. He says there, How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts at this time when he's writing this the glory of Solomon's temple it hadn't been built yet Solomon's temple hadn't gone up and the tabernacle that David is writing about here it was nothing special to look at it just would have been animal skins nothing pretty would have been dull nothing to draw attention so when David says there in verse 1 how lovely how amiable how beloved is your tabernacle he's not talking about what you're seeing on the outside He's talking about what is on the inside and what is on the inside. that's causing him to say that it's the presence of God. It's the altars. It's the golden lampstand, the table of showbread in the ark, all of the things that were involved in the worship of God and that brought his living presence in there. He's also he's talking about the golden vessels that you would see. They were beautiful. And he's talking about hearing the Levites singing the praises and the glory of God. All of those things brought in God's presence in a tangible way. And to David, that made the tabernacle, didn't look like much on the outside to look at it, but that made it the most beautiful place he could imagine or wherever he would want to be. And that's why verse 2, he says, My soul longs, yea, it even faints for the courts of the Lord. Or, as one translation puts it, I desperately want to be in the courts of the Lord's people. When God's presence is in a place, that's the way it ought to be. We used to sing this song, Psalm 122. I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. And why is that? Because we're going to meet with Him. He's there. And that's the way it ought to be. David, he's saying his whole being, his heart, his soul, his flesh. All of him desires to experience God's presence. It's all consuming. He says there at the end of verse two, my heart and my flesh, they cry out for the living God. The people of the world, they do not understand any of that. They don't. It means nothing to them. In fact, they want to get away from it. That's the way I was before I became a Christian. Came to a meeting like this, I could not stand it. The praise, I just wanted to get away from all of it. But when God regenerates a heart, it's where you want to be. You want to be where God's people is. You know, our building here, talking about the tabernacle, wasn't much to look at. You know, our building here is not exactly in the best part of town. I mean, we meet in the industrial park. Looks pretty lowly, doesn't it? I mean, I had customers back when I was working and even now. Oh, well, where does your church meet? Well, we meet in the industrial park or at the far end. But we fixed it up really nice on the inside. Where we meet may not look like much on the outside. And I've, honestly, I mean, it looks nice. I think we should have things clean and neat on the inside. I just don't really care that much, honestly. But, but I'll tell you, it may not look like much on the outside, but when God meets us here, like he was here with us here on Wednesday night when we had prayer meeting, there is nowhere else I'd rather be. It's the loveliest place on earth as far as I'm concerned, right? <laughs> because God was here. It doesn't matter how many people were here. Without less than there is today. But I'm saying the Lord met with us, didn't he? And he did. Tuesday night, I'm singing with 30 convicted felons in prison. And it definitely didn't look like much. None of them had any color. and They were wearing khakis. It wasn't much to look at. But God's presence came down on us there just singing hymns. And I'm saying, man, I would rather be there than thunder over Louisville any day. Amen. Or doing whatever. I'm just saying, wherever God's people. I went this last Sunday night and heard a guy preach to eight people, and he's a great preacher. I don't. I, I told him, I said, I don't know what's wrong with the people in this town. I don't. know. Why aren't they out here listening to you preach? And he's real humble about it. But I'm telling you, a great preacher. Old country boy doesn't look like much. He's overweight a little bit, but man, he can preach. I'll tell you what. God's hand is on him. David here in this psalm, he compares experiencing the presence of God for one day in his house, he says, I'd rather do that than to live in Trump Tower, have room service every day, and live in that luxury for three years, because that's what a thousand days is. Look what it says in verse 10. He says, a day in your courts is better than a thousand anywhere else is implied. He said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Yeah, ask the rich man. You know, remember the rich man and Lazarus? Ask him now. I bet if we could ask him now, would you give up three years, a thousand days of your sumptuous living to just have one day back where you could get before God and get your life right and come to know him and experience his presence and his favor and his face? Let's ask him what he would think about that. I think he would agree with David. Amen? So we think we can just do what we want to in this life. There comes a day, though, doesn't there, when we've got to face the living God in judgment. That's what happens. I think here lately, we've had a taste of the presence of God, but I would say just the taste. But it should be enough to whet our appetite for more. And that's what David's saying. He's, saying, He's a godly man. We're godly people, aren't we? We need to get back to this. He says, my soul longs. It faints. It cries out for the living God. Have you ever experienced that in your life? Do you long for that, what he's saying here in Psalm 84? He's not just crying out for some kind of emotional experience. I know people that they'll chase emotions and feelings, and that's what we have in a lot of Christianity today. That's what's going on with a lot of this music that's out there. It's just emotion-based, feeling-based. David says, no, I don't want that. This isn't some idea of who God is. This isn't a thought. This isn't I'm out seeking a blessing machine. Somebody will just give me one of me. He says, no, no, no. What I want is a personal experience with the living God. Now, we used to sing a song here. In your presence, that's where I am strong. In your presence, O Lord, my God. In your presence, that's where I belong. Seeking your face, touching your grace. In the cleft of the rock. In your presence, O God. We used to sing that song. It's a great song. We need to sing it some more. We sing the song. We need to mean what we sing, don't we? And that's where we should be. We need to see this today, if nothing else. We need to see that having the presence of the living God in our midst and in our lives, corporately and privately, is everything. It is. Because without him and his presence with us, we are sunk. We are. In Numbers Israel they had repeatedly sinned God forgave them and finally at one point he told them, you're going to wander in the wilderness they wouldn't trust the Lord but when they heard that they decided well we're going to go up on our own you promised us this land we're going to go up on our own and they said this to Moses they said here we are and we'll go up to the place which the Lord has promised for we have sinned and Moses says now, why do you transgress the command of the Lord? For this will not succeed. Do not go up, lest you be defeated by your enemies. And here's why he told them not to. He says, for the Lord will not be with you. So they had a promise, but they didn't have his presence. And guess what? They were defeated. So listen, all of this faith walk stuff, it's more than just seeing a printed promise on a page, isn't it? It's a lot more than that. We have to have the presence of the living God with us to succeed. But I would say in light of the way things are on a rebound, we should be encouraged because his presence has been with us. Really, he's been in our midst in many ways lately. Like some ways I know that you all don't know about some things. Okay, but. I think a lot of people here, we preached that message on 2 Chronicles 7.14 on Wednesday, and I think a lot of people took that to heart and are seeking the Lord with all their heart. Because he says, when all these things come on you that are showing my presence, this is with you seek me with all of your heart. He says, I will turn your captivity, didn't he? Yeah. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, let God deal with you. Then he says, I will come and I'll heal your land. I'll give you what we all want. And I think that's happening. And if that hadn't been the case in your life, you know you've been living far from God. And you don't know that God is the living God in your life. The solution is in James 4. James 4 says this, submit to God. Then resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you cleanse your hands you sinners purify your hearts you double minded lament and mourn and weep let your laughter be turned to mourning your joy to gloom humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he'll do what to you he'll lift you up so he's saying if you don't know and you know we all know you know whether God's presence is in your life right now whether you're trusting in the living God whether there's something there that's a hindrance where you're really not seeking his face you know that but he says hey Submit to him. Draw near to him. And the promise is he will draw near to you. And if it's sin, he's saying, deal with it. Just cleanse your hands, you sinners. You're living in doubt and unbelief. He says, just purify your minds, you double-minded. God's faithful, amen? But we need to consider here, this is the title of the message, the living God. We need to consider what David's saying here. He calls God at the end of verse 3, my heart and my flesh cry out for The living God, and he is our God. Repeatedly, Old and New Testament compare the idols of the nations to the living God of the Bible. When Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal, he said, you guys go ahead. You build an altar and you offer a sacrifice and call on the name of your God. And here's what it says. They took the bowl which was given them and they prepared it and they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh, Baal, hear us. And the Bible says, but there was no voice. No one answered. You know why? He doesn't have a voice. He's not living. He's not the living God. This is to me is one of the funniest things in the Bible. He mocks them. He says, Cry louder. He's a God. He's got to hear you. He said he's either meditating or he's busy or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and just needs to be awake. He's there. He's your God. Call on him. He's mocking him, right? But here's the difference. This is a dumb idol they're worshiping, Baal. But it says when Elijah prepared his sacrifice, drenched it with water, here was his prayer. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. And he says, hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God. And boy, because he's the living God, did he hear? Oh, yeah. He heard an answer, didn't he? There wasn't that no voice was heard. Fire came down, licked up all the water, licked up the sacrifices. And there was no doubt then who was the living God. And that's who David's crying out for. That's who we serve, a living God that he hears. And he not only hears, but he comes down and he will intervene in the situations that we need him to intervene in. The living God, the source of all life, the creator of heaven and earth and all that is. God is eternal. God is everlasting. God is unchanging. He is the eternal I am. The eternal I am. Everything else is created. Everything else. He is the living God, the eternal I am. Now, King Belshazzar, let me say it, had to learn that God was the living God in the hard way. Because he didn't learn much from his father, King Nebuchadnezzar. Because Nebuchadnezzar got lifted up in pride, said, look what all I've done. And God says, you're going to find out you didn't have anything to do with any of that. I gave it all to you. And he says, because of that, your pride, you're going to eat grass for a while, like an ox. And your fingernails are going to grow. And all of that stuff happened, right? Until one day his senses came back to him and he says, now I know who is the God that reigns supreme on this earth. Who was the living God? But his son didn't learn a thing from that, did he? So he decides he's going to throw a royal party. And when he's drunk, he commands that all the gold and silver vessels that they had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, they said, bring those out. And he, it says, and his lords, and his wives, and his concubines began to get drunker and drink wine out of the vessels from the Lord, things that were holy. And it says they praise the God of gold, silver, bronze, and iron and wood and stone while drinking from the Lord's vessels. They're mocking the living God. And all of a sudden, in the midst of their party, they got a message, didn't they? Because it says there appeared fingers of a man's hand and it wrote on the plaster in the king's walls. And it says his knees began to knock then. And there was a message. None of his astrologers, none of his wise men could figure out what that message said. Who can do it? Oh, the queen tells him, I know somebody that can, Daniel. Daniel can tell you what that message says. And so they bring Daniel. And this is one thing Daniel tells him. He says, you've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone. He says, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. It's all through the Bible. The prophets will say, here are these dumb idols that you're trusted in. They can't help you. You're trusted in your money. You're trusted. And you cry out then when you're in trouble and see how much help you get. And that's what he says. They're gods who do not see or hear or know. But the living God, he says, he's the one that you have just insulted Belshazzar. And this is true for all of us. He says he's the God who holds your breath in his hand and he owns All of your ways, the living God. And guess what? The night wasn't done before Belshazzar was gone. Sinners think they can brazenly say whatever they want to about the God of the Bible, live however they want to, flaunt their sin in His face, and they don't realize it says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of whom? The living God. But listen, he's the one we're serving though, isn't it? Amen. He's the one we're serving. Here's what we need to do. We need to realize when we get on our knees and pray, and this is all of us, including myself, we need to say to ourselves, I am getting in the presence. I am coming into the presence of not just a God afar of off. I'm coming into the presence of the living God. The living God and not glibly pray. We tend to not take prayer in God's presence as serious as we should I don't think so it's kind of like Moses when God appeared to Moses on the back side of the desert in the burning bush Moses he looked at that and he just kind of almost casually said I will turn aside and see this great sight why the bush does not burn and he starts to head towards it and God speaks to him out of that bush stop you need to stop where you are he says, don't come any closer. Take your sandals off because the ground you're on now is holy ground. You can't just come in here anyway. You want to, Moses? Take those sandals off. And Moses didn't understand at first when he saw that, but he did after God spoke to him because it says this, God said, I am the God of your father from the bush. Spoke this to him. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And after that, When he heard the voice of God, realized who was talking to him, it says that Moses was afraid to look upon God and he hid his face. Hid his face. Because who did he encounter? He didn't encounter this idol that is dumb and can't speak. He encountered the great I Am. That who was speaking to him out of that bush. His presence, the living God, appeared to him. And when we pray... And when we truly pray, I'm saying we are encountering the same living God. Maybe not a burning bush, but we're encountering the same living God. I read this quote. I'd never seen this before. George Mueller said this about praying to God. He says, how truly precious it is that everyone who rests alone upon the Lord Jesus for salvation has in the living God a father to whom he may fully unbosom himself concerning the most minute affairs of his life and concerning everything that lies upon his heart. And then he wrote this. He said, dear saint, he asked the question, do you know the living God? And George Miller, if you've ever seen pictures of him, he looked like the nicest man you'd ever want to meet. And I think he was from all accounts I've ever read about him. And he would have said that nicely. Dear saint, Do you know the living God? It's a question for all of us. And he went on to say this. Is he in Jesus your father? Be assured that Christianity is something more than forms and creeds and ceremonies. He says there is life and power and reality in our holy faith. If you never yet have known this, then come, he says, and taste for yourself. In other words, what's he saying? What's the Bible telling us? What's all this about? He's saying it's not just coming to church, attending meetings, being faithful every week. Nothing wrong with that. Encourage everyone to do that, but it's not just doing that, singing songs, reading your Bible every day, quote unquote, I've said my prayers so my conscience is eased by that but it's not those things we need to be doing all those things but it's in doing all those things what he's saying is in that we are encountering what's the purpose of all of that for us to encounter the living God on a daily basis trusting, counting on, expecting the living God in our daily lives and that's what the Bible presents we can have that kind of relationship So listen, it's not just reading your Bible. It's walking down the Emmaus Road with the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus, and letting Him speak to you through His Word. Having that sense that God just gave me a word. A word of encouragement. A word of warning. A word whatever. I could just know God just spoke to me. My heart's burning somewhat. That's what we're talking about. It's not just reading your Bible. It's not just praying formal prayers. It's Psalm 34. David said, I sought the Lord and he heard me and he delivered me from all of my fears. He said, this poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. And he went on to say, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusts in him. It's tasting, experiencing the living God. That's what he's saying. I had a hard way to go. Oh, I sought the Lord and he heard my cry. I experienced his deliverance. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusts in him. You know, Jesus told his disciples right before he left in John 16, he says, until now, he says, you've asked nothing in my name. He's talking about after he's gone, after he's risen. He says, ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. Why does he say that? Because it's the joy of knowing that God's presence is with you. That his face is shining on you and all is well. And then when that happens, when you pray that your joy may be full, he's saying, not that you're all enamored with the blessing you got, but that you're enamored that God, I'm with you. I'm there helping you. And then it's Psalm 16. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I don't know how it is for you all. But if I have a dire situation, I want relief. Everyone does. We're calling to have God move in our lives. But is that really for me? I mean, it is more than that. It's the joy of knowing that God is walking with me. He's helping me. His presence is with me. I mean, that means as much as the blessing and answer to prayer. Amen. Amen. God's with me. He is, as David says in verse 3, he is my God, my God and my king. The living God. So it's not just viewing God that he's just off somewhere. Well, we know God is in heaven, but he's also here, isn't he? He's here today with us. (laughs) You just hope he's just out there somewhere, and if you pray hard enough, he just might help you. (laughs) We need to understand what? What does the New Testament teach us? That he lives in you. You are now the temple, the tabernacle of the living God. The God that David cries out for if you're in here and you're born again, spirit filled, he is the God he's crying out for lives in you and me. Paul says, first Corinthians three, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? And we're talking about the living God. Well, he went on to say in second Corinthians six for you. Corinthians are the temple of the living God. That's the exact words he uses. He says, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. We need to let that sink in. You are the temple of the living God. That is no small thing. Literally the temple of the living God. We don't have to go searching for him. God Almighty, Paul says, and that's God-inspired, God Almighty walks in us, dwells in us. Paul said in Colossians 1, it is Christ in you, the hope of glory, the living God, the living risen Savior, He's there. So when we lay hands on someone, whether it's your children or anyone for that matter, we can trust that the Holy Spirit resting in us, residing in us the living God can minister through us just like he did the Lord Jesus that's why we can trust the promise of John 14 14 he says if you ask anything in my name he says I will do it Jesus says that he says you ask anything in my name and that's after he talked about the greater works that I do you shall do also at the end of that he says if you ask anything in my name I will do it For instance, in Acts 14, Saul and Barnabas, they're in Lystra. They're preaching the gospel. And it says to the crowd that they're preaching to, Paul's doing the preaching. There's a man there, lame from his mother's womb. From the day he was born, this man was lame. And it says he's listening to Paul preach. And Paul is looking at him, says he's looking intently at him observing him intently, it says, and seeing that he had faith to be healed. So he had to have faith. Paul wasn't just pulling anybody out of the crowd because everybody probably didn't have this kind of faith. But he saw that this man had faith to be healed. And Paul said, seeing that he had faith to be healed, he said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And it said, he leaped and he walked. And the people see this happen because of Paul preaching and what he said and what happened. And it said, they said, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Paul had to stop them. They're getting ready to offer sacrifices to him. They're naming Paul Zeus. He had to stop him. He says, no, no. He goes, why are you doing these things? We are also men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless idols that they were worshiping and turn to the Living God is what he says, who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. Paul's saying, you guys got it all wrong. I'm not God. What you're seeing happening here is happening because of the presence of the Spirit of God that dwells in me. Jesus says, you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus is working through Paul, through the Holy Spirit that is in him. Same nature. And that would be the same with us. We should be expecting God puts you in a situation and there's a need there and he anoints you that you can do what Jesus did, what Paul did. That's what we've been talking about in Mark 16. The living God. The maker of heaven and earth and all things. Jeremiah told the Jews, he said, these idols you're worshiping, they're dull hearted, they're foolish. And he said they have a worthless doctrine. They're teaching what they're all about. It's worthless. There's nothing to it. But he said this to him, Jeremiah 10:10. He says, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. The true God, the living God, the everlasting king. So you may be asking yourself, and maybe you're not, but maybe you are. How do I get there? How do I get to know the living God? How can I say, like David, my God and my king? Well, look what it says in verses three to four. He says, even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my king and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They'll still be praising you. And he brings two birds into the discussion at this point to make a point. Most people, I think, are overwhelmed by two things. One is they feel that God is so great and I feel so insignificant and worthless. How can I experience the living God? And the other is people have this need for safety, security. People are restless. And the sparrow and the swallow answer both those needs there are 325 million people in the usa and when you look at yourself in relation to that you just be like well who am i what am i worth in the big scheme of things you always think what will my one little measly vote count in the midst of all of that so when you're in a big crowd i don't know how you are when a big crowd whether it's a ball game or just out in traffic you ever looked around at traffic there's all these people And how can God be that concerned about me? He got all these people to take care of. Who cares about you? And the sparrows represent those who feel like they are not worth anything or they're insignificant. That's who they represent. That's why he's bringing them in here. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 10, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them, he said, falls to the ground apart from your father's will. He says, but the very hairs... Of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And in Luke 12, he says, there Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Not one of them is forgotten before God. You can be in the midst of crowds, sometimes friends, family, and in a sense, you feel that this sense of homelessness. In a sense. But like the little sparrow, what is he saying here? We can find a home in God, with the living God, a place of refuge, security, acceptance. David said this even the sparrow, verse 3 even the sparrow has found a home. Even the sparrow. There's a lot of insignificant people in the Bible that God uses and blesses and points out. Think about the thief on the cross hanging there next to Jesus. Nobody cared about him. I guarantee you that he is hanging there desolate. He's got no clothes. He's got no home. He's suffering. Yet, when he asked Jesus, and here he is, you think about what he's going through. Jesus is dying for the sins of the world. Suffering like we will never understand. Yet in the midst of that, this thief who is a nobody looks to him and says, Lord, remember me. Remember me. And you know what he says to him? Don't fear because you have a home. You got a place where you won't suffer anymore. And he says to him, truly, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. You have a home, a dwelling place with God, the living God forever. Now, if he's going to have mercy on him, he'll have mercy on anyone, won't he? Because he said, I'm getting what I deserve. I'm nothing but a condemned, corrupt sinner that getting exactly what I deserve. But God, please have mercy on me. Remember me. He says, oh, no, you've got a home now with me. That's what he says to the sparrow and the swallow. The next, the swallow has a nest for herself where she may lay her young. That's a little bird. Those birds fly around. They are nervous as can be, and they're really fast. They're just constantly darting around. They're restless. They seem like they don't have any purpose. But David says this. He says, in God's house, even the swallow finds a place to settle down, to build a nest, and to lay her young, it says. And here's the thing. Sin has made the world restless. The world's restless right now. They're darting from one thing to another. They can't get enough of their sin, their drunkenness, their sex, their whatever it is. All caught up into all the hobbies, everything to get their mind off of what they're at. They're never satisfied, are they? Restless, like that swallow. And Isaiah says, the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. But he's telling us here, we're saying, here's the answer to experience the living God. He says, when you encounter him, he will give you rest. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, Jesus said, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's what the world needs to hear. That's the gospel. That's what the living God, being in his presence, will do. That's what he's saying here. Even the sparrow has found a home, this insignificant bird. And the swallow, this restless, purposeless bird, a nest in God's house, a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. And then he adds, Even your altars, O Lord of hosts. So what we need to see about those two birds and birds in general. They are just nervous by nature. And you know, my son John, it, he doesn't do it so much now, but back not too long ago, we'd go to any park, and what he wants to do is just chase birds. I'm like, you'll be chasing them till you'll never catch a bird. And what are you going to do with the thing if you get it, anyways? I hadn't crossed that bridge. But they just they run away as soon as they see any. You even get near them, don't they? That's the way birds are. And why is that? It's because birds are defenseless and helpless. And they're constantly looking for a place of safety, aren't they? And that's what we said here. And David is saying God's house is that place for them. They're blessed. They found that place of safety there. (laughs) And when you realize and I realize our need, that we're defenseless and helpless, we will fly to the refuge of the living God, won't we? That's what will happen. And many times I think God uses the crisis of life. Maybe we've gotten away from him. Maybe we've gotten away and he'll use the crisis of life to bring us back, won't he? It can be illness. It can be trials of all sorts. And that's when he gets you to that place, especially if you're a Christian and you cry out to him, God, I need your help. Where is the living God? I need him, not these idols that can't help me at all. I need the living God and they'll seek God. You know, Charles was telling me the other day, there was a builder. We know a Christian dying of cancer and he told him he said it was the best thing that could happen to me he doesn't have light on divine healing like we have but the thing that Charles was saying and I thought this was good he says it caused me going through this to get all the stuff out of my life that didn't need to be there it spiritually drew me near to God and helped me out in that way we know God's provided healing doesn't he But Psalm 107 says, God will many times use sickness to bring us back to him. We just read that the other night. And when we cry out, though, that's his goal. When we cry out to him, cry out for the living God, what does it say? He sends his word and heals us. Amen. Amen. Psalm 119, David wrote, before I was afflicted, I went astray. He says, but now I keep your word. He went on to say, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Told somebody this the other day. Going through a trial. I said, we want comfort. We want deliverance out of our troubles, don't we? But God wants conformity. We want comfort, but he wants our conformity. Who would you rather be? We'll get back to the rich man and Lazarus. Who would you rather be in the end? Lazarus suffered all of his life. Dogs licking his sores with their nasty tongues and those open sores all around his body. But who would you want to be? And the other man, he says, you had your good things. That's what he heard. You've had your good things. This man had evil things, but now he is comforted. And you are in torments and there's no relief. What would we rather have? We want comfort. God wants conformity. He wants to bring us into the image of his son and make us holy people. That's his purpose for our lives. Like I said, it talks there about even your altars. So what's the two things that those birds have to pass by to get to the dwelling place of God? The altars. And there are two altars there in the tabernacle, the altar of sacrifice and the altar of incense. You want to know there's only one way into the presence of the living God. And the first one is the altar of sacrifice. That's where the animals were slain. Sins were confessed, transferred to the innocent victims, and blood there was shed and poured out. And God says, you want to come to me and get help from me, the living God? You've got to come through blood. There is no other way. And the altar of incense was the next altar. And what did that represent? The prayers of the saints. Prayers. It's first the blood, then prayers, and then you can enter into the presence of the living God. Hebrews 10 says this, Wherefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, that's what we're talking about, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, he says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We must never forget that we only can approach God. How? It's through the blood of the Lord Jesus and his work on the cross. It is by that that we have gained access to the living God. And here's what we can know, that with that blood, our conscience can be washed clear. We no longer have to bear this burden of sin and and draw back in fear that we know this holy God, this living God. Like with Moses, he's afraid. We don't have to be afraid anymore because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we gain entrance. We can approach God with full assurance. He'll receive us. And then when we've done that, had ourselves washed, we can approach him and we can say then, my God and my king. Not somebody else's, but my God and my king. And I'll tell you, when that happens, when you've made that commitment to him, then being in his presence and wanting to experience it should be a consuming desire. Isn't that what David's telling us there? My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And that's why he ends his desire to be in God's house by stating this. Look what it says in verse 4. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. Why? Because when they've experienced all that, and they've experienced the presence of the living God, and they know He's with them, they will be singing His praises. You can't but help but do that. It's natural, isn't it? And we've had that happen. Let's do that now. Wesley, you came back at just the right time. So come on up here and everybody stand up. Because listen, while he's getting set up here, when you experience God's presence, you can't help but praise him. It's Psalm 103, isn't it? Bless the Lord, O my soul. And how much of you is going to do that? It says, And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits, who forgives all thine iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems. Our life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. Amen. And you also can't help but sing, because thy loving kindness is better than life. Amen. Amen. My lips shall praise you, and thus will I bless you while I live, and I will lift up my hands to your name. Amen. 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 Well, let's do that.
1: Satisfied. For here, my heart is satisfied within Your presence. Within, within your, presence. your presence, I sing beneath. I sing beneath the shadow, the shadow of Your wings. As better is one thing. One day in your courts, better is one day in your house, better is one day in your courts, thousands elsewhere, better is one day in your courts, better is one day in your house, better is one day in your courts, the thousands elsewhere, the thousands, thousands elsewhere. One thing I ask.